Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Well, hello, listeners. Today we have the pleasure of having a guest and an executive spotlight and then two pitches. It's all fantastic stuff, so stay tuned. Our guest, Mina Salib, wears many hats. He's an AI investor and he views AI from the business perspective and has a deep insight into the possibilities. If you've ever wondered about AI and what it is really doing and what it can do, you need to hear him. And yeah, he, what is AI anyway? He, oh, oh, artificial intelligence. Sorry. Right, okay. and, he, and he also manages a WeWork lab where he continues his work with startups and entrepreneurs. And our executive spotlight this evening is Adam Tarinas, a friend who recently exited a startup and is on to his next venture, Tarinas Consulting, a marketing agency, where he leverages his experience marketing to help propel businesses to the next level. But first, I'd like to welcome our guest, Mina Salib. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. You wear a couple of different hats, one as an accelerator manager, I guess, for lack of a better word. And then you also are an investor in AI or artificial intelligence. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to run a lab full of entrepreneurs. Yeah. So I've been in technology and the New York City startup ecosystem for about five years now. First starting a media company in 2013. I worked on that for about a year and a half until I transitioned into more of a mix of investor, supporter, operation, manager, role where since then I've been kind of this incubation manager working with startups, typically at pre-seed and seed stage. They're coming in, they have a little bit of funding, but they're looking to really accelerate their growth. Maybe they raised some money from family and friends, or maybe they did a Kickstarter. Maybe they convinced a couple of angel investors, early supporters to give them some money. And they're coming in with about three to five people typically. And we're working with them to really scale them up to about 10 to 15 when they typically graduate an incubator program. So is that a WeWork incubator? Yeah. So right now I manage something called WeWork Labs, uh, WeWork Labs incubator in Dumbo, Brooklyn. We house about 35 startup companies right now. And again, those range in team sizes and industries and technologies. So I have consumer CPG companies working out of the space to B2B enterprise companies. And each of them have different products that they're selling, different solutions. And they all are facing similar but different challenges. So wow. is this based on the original WeWork model where they're paying for space? This is uh, the labs program. We're bringing them in a little earlier than you would typically find going to WeWorks. But the main difference is we're working with startups. Anybody can have a WeWork space. Anybody can go into a WeWork and pay for a desk or pay for an office. They can start up at a WeWork. And WeWork wants to build that culture of innovation and support and community for really anybody that is trying to build a venture or looking to service ventures. But WeWork Labs is focused specifically on startup companies. And startup companies meaning they're has to be a scalability factor within the business. So whether they are a SaaS company or they are a CPG consumer business, we also will work with those types of companies. So you don't actually have to be quote unquote tech enabled to be part of the business, but everybody in some way, shape or form has some technology built into their business or their backend. So Mina, what is it specifically that you do? Do you mentor some of these companies? How do you get involved with them? And presumably you try to help them in some ways, right? Yeah. So I run a very curated type support service where a company can come in when they're two to three people or a company can come in with five or six or seven people. Do people have to apply to be part of this program or do they just show up and say, hey, I want to be part of this? No, there is a vetting system that we go through.
through with the companies. So I meet with them to see if they're a fit for the community, for the incubator, and if they're at the right stage of scale to be a part of the program. Because I want to make sure you get as much value from the support services that we're offering as opposed to just wasting your money at times. So are all of your startups people from New York or do they come from across the country to do this? People are always moving to New York to start tech companies, to start startups, right? Because we're quickly growing into the second largest hub for startups really in the world. You know, people are coming in from everywhere, but you have to be based in New York to be a part of the program I run. So you said you have a curated program. So what does that mean and what are the pieces or the elements of that? Yeah, so I'm tailoring a lot of what I'm providing startups based on their specific needs. So every company that comes in, I'm meeting with them. I'm getting a sense of where their stage is at. Do they need funding? Do they need to hire? Do they need help with sales, go to market, different things like that? Are they having problems converting people in their sales funnel? And I'm both consulting with them personally, but also bringing in mentors and people from the ecosystem, venture capitalists, other successfully exited founders, like my friend to the left over here, and people that have gone through the process and are able to kind of guide the startups on what steps to take to get to the next point in the company's growth cycle. What is your success rate? Has the program been successful so far? Yeah, program has been pretty successful. It was relaunched about a year and a half ago. We've helped hundreds of businesses raise some funding to actually get them to the next point in in their life cycles. I will say like we're trying to scale the program as best as possible where we're trying to leverage both our local reach, but also our global reach, right? Like we're in labs and we works all over the world. So, you know, there's programs really everywhere and we're trying to make sure that both our founders can tap into local markets, but as well as global markets. And so people can find you on LinkedIn. And do you respond to conversations on LinkedIn? Could they ask you like, hey, Mina, I'm in Chicago. Is there anything here for me? Yeah, well, I can definitely point them to a WeWork or a lab that is appropriate for them based on their market. But also, you know, always happy to connect with startups anywhere or around the world that I can personally be helpful with. I can't be helpful to every company, right? Like, People are springing up ideas all the time. But if they're at the right stage and have the right quote unquote metrics, I I can try to be as supportive as possible. So what are some of the common problems that startups have? You have the unique perspective of being able to work with a fairly large number of them. Are there some common themes, some common challenges that they have? Yeah, some of the common challenges is early stage companies are typically looking for three things. They're looking for funding. They're looking for customers and they're looking for talent that they can hire. So if you can help a startup with one of those three things, you are very valuable to them. Being able to tap into my network of investors or specific partners that we have, even corporate partners could be very helpful at times. You know, sometimes a lot of the companies are having challenges putting together pilots with large Fortune 500s and companies like that. That is also really helpful to help them guide them along those different steps that there are specific roadblocks, especially when you're going through procurement. You're going through multiple channels of sometimes just bureaucracy and how do you navigate that. Over the course of career, you get enough experience where you figure out how to navigate that stuff. Typically, an early stage entrepreneur doesn't necessarily have that unless they're coming directly from industry. I'm just wondering, now that the economy seems to be doing better, is attracting talent to a startup harder or is it easier? It depends on the right opportunity. If it's a right opportunity, people get very excited about joining an early stage company because they're more incentivized, right? Like you're kind of incentivizing them. Maybe you're giving them a little bit of a lower salary, but you're incentivizing them with equity and your mission, right? Like the mission and the company that you're building. 
I think the culture that we're in, right, where it's a very startup culture, everybody's excited about entrepreneurship, people want to be a part of it, that's more lending towards talented people working with startups as opposed to working with corporations. That's why you see a lot of corporations setting up innovation arms and innovation firms and innovation funds where they're actually creating corporate venture arms to actually acquire startups because a lot of the talent doesn't necessarily want to go work for the big corporation anymore. They want to go work for the startup. We'll be right back after this message. I know we want to talk with Mina about artificial intelligence, and we'll do that right after this commercial break. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit GearHeartLaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. And our special guest this evening, Mina Salib, who is the manager at the WeWorks Incubator. We had a question for Mina. What is the biggest mistake you ever made that you were glad happened? I, I think the biggest mistake I ever made made was going to school for biology and attempting to be a dentist at some point. Um, (laughs) I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now if I continued down that path, but I did go to school for biology. I got a bachelor's in science from St. John's University, so I'm a local kid. I'm very excited that I pivoted away from it. I'll tell you that much. So for anybody that's listening and you're in college, even your fourth year, and you've been studying something you don't necessarily want to do for the rest of your life, it's okay. Get it, out of it while you can. You can still get out of it. <laughs> I got to tell you, both our kids pivoted. So our son got a biochemistry degree, got a job and was complaining because all his friends made more money, went back, got a master's in bioinformatics and loves the programming part. Like, why didn't he do this to begin with? And more than doubled his salary. Right. Daughter got a psych degree. Now she's studying to be a nurse. So, <laughs> And there, I mean, there's a little yeah. bit of psychology there, right? Yeah. But I do want to talk to you about artificial intelligence. So when I think of artificial intelligence from like when I was a kid, I think of the Jetsons and Rosie. And I want to know how soon can I get a Rosie? <laughs> you know? So Rosie's like the maid, right? Yeah, the robot a, maid. The okay, robot got it. Maid. Yeah. But she breaks down a lot. <laughs> I don't want her to break down. I think uh, the Rosie, I guess, in practical terms could be looked at as general intelligence or this concept of artificial general intelligence, meaning the machine is really able to understand context and it's not just spitting out solutions or responses that you've programmed it for, but it understands context. It learns on itself and it's able to actually generate real information based on its overall real world environment or situation, digesting everything in front of them like a human would. I think we're far from that. Elon Musk argues that. How far are we from that type of technology? And that's what they're really, I guess, most fearful of. But Really, in current day, modern day terms, artificial intelligence is anything that allows a machine to basically take on a task that a human once really had to do or we imagined only a human could do. 
during the 1900s or during the industrial revolution human ingenuity or human like physique was kind of replaced we didn't have to do laborious tasks anymore because we built machines that kind of did that for us did the heavy lifting and now we've built machines and built artificial intelligence to do tedious tasks you know we're trying to replace secretaries we're trying to replace customer service agents we're trying to replace anything that has tended to be this manual repetitive process we are now building machines to actually do now. That's fascinating, but it's obviously threatening to a lot of people when we start talking about replacing labor. I mean, even if it is a bit repetitive, people need things to do. They need ways to earn income. Do you have like a personal view on how far we should go with that and what the implications might be, say, 20 years from now? I'm always consistently talking about ethical AI and building in an ethical way. Technology is going to continue to progress and it's really up to those who are building it and really all of us to make sure it's built in a way that embraces everyone, has everybody's point of view taken into account. It also enables people to actually optimize their lives as opposed to just simply replacing them. And what you'll find is there's an idea in all technological revolutions that humans will always find a place to take part in this new economy. And the idea is that with the replacement of these jobs by machines, there will be new jobs that are created. You can argue that for days. Honestly, I don't have the exact answer to it. But I would say that because people don't necessarily have to do these repetitive tasks anymore, half my time is spent on email. If I had a machine that- Oh, email is like one of the most repetitive things in the whole universe, right? right? Yeah. Absolutely, right? And look at what Google's doing right now. How many of us have probably had Google writing out our emails for us now, right? So all we have to do is let the computers send emails back and forth and we can do something else, right? It might get to that point, right? But what Google's doing is a perfect practical use case of how AI has been built to actually make your life easier. But as far as the jobs go, YouTube blogger, influencer, Amazon expert. Uh, None of those jobs existed when I was growing up or even in my young adulthood. And people can do those jobs. And I would much rather do that than stand behind the counter at a McDonald's, right? Yeah, I completely agree with you. But to the other point made earlier, the person that was working at a McDonald's doesn't necessarily have that skill set or hasn't necessarily grown up in a way that they understand how to take on those jobs. So the solution to this is we really need to re-educate the population and we really need to make sure that we're teaching the right things in schools right now so that our kids are actually growing up with the skill set to take on these new jobs. There's going to be much more focus on people that are able to analyze data and know what to do with it. What are some of the other types of AI that you're aware of? What are some of the new types of AI that are coming down the road? There are different subsets of AI or different AI techniques. So you have machine learning. So what is machine learning? Is that's where the machine is learning new things and then it performs tasks better. Yeah, but it's based on the data that you're feeding it, okay. right? Or it's the, it's based on the data that it's being fed through whatever solution you're building. So for instance, if you created a chatbot that is based off of actual machine learning, then the machine learning initially was trained on a set of data. They call it training data, where you fed it historical data. It is now spitting out solutions based on that data. And then moving forward, Based on the conversations that that bot will be having with, let's say it's a customer service bot, based on conversations that that bot will be having with people that are asking the bot questions, 
it's going to be learning from those conversations. Mm -hmm. And then through time, it's going to be able to give you better answers moving forward. That's great. So what other kinds of AI are there? You have machine learning, you have computer vision and image recognition, right? And those deal with visuals. They're scanning environments or they're taking in pictures or images or videos, and they're able to train and understand different environments. They're able to understand who's walking in the street. You're seeing computer vision being rolled out in governments. We know China's using a lot of computer vision. Well, in theory, every citizen has a profile in a Chinese computer someplace, right? right? And they're completely monitored. Right, exactly. So there's a lot of monitoring being done, and that's what they're using there. Computer vision, they're probably using a little bit of machine learning as well, right? Like machine learning typically underlies a lot of things. Or natural language processing, and that's being able to extract data. Let's say you're trying to extract data from a form. You're using natural language processing to understand what is on this form and being able to implement that data and kind of analyze it without having to manually extract it. So I would love to have that for all the business cards we get, something that would just pull the emails off. I still can't find anything say, that works well. I, I, w- I would love some artificial intelligence around marketing, right? right. I mean, <laughs> tell us the answer. What, yeah. what, what is the ROI on this? But we're starting, to, we're starting to see that as well. There's a lot of marketers that are using AI to scan. I had a company pitch me on the idea of they've scanned the web for all these different articles and you as a marketer or publisher when you're trying to figure out certain titles or certain catchphrases to use based on certain subjects they'll be able to suggest certain appropriate subject or titles based on what has been published in the past and what has actually performed well on the internet wow that's amazing it's sort of like computerized trading right you know only for marketing it does the analysis of what works and then puts it out there the problem with that in my opinion opinion is, doesn't it sort of quell creativity? If you're always looking at big data sets, you might Mm -hmm. be able to find the items that are most popular. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to create something new, doesn't the fact that you're focusing more on big data sets sort of cut against that? Yeah, but I think the idea of AI is to free you up to be more creative. You do less time-consuming work that is tedious, and you're more focused because that task was done quicker you're now able to focus on more creative things. Yeah, I think I see what you're talking about. I read about Steve Jobs. He wore the same outfit every day, not the the same one, but you know what I mean? Like he had a closet full of black jeans and black turtlenecks. He washed his clothes once in a while, I hope. No, but he he basically never had to decide what to wear Mm -hmm. because that's one less decision that he had to make. And those are the kind of things you're giving to AI. That's what you're saying. Like he could focus on building a company. What's the next big thing? Because he didn't have to figure out blue shirt or red shirt. Right. No, exactly. You're you're exactly right. And you're seeing it in agriculture technology. I just interviewed somebody on my podcast that is using a mix of machine learning and computer vision to analyze cow udders right? To see if they have... That would have been my first choice. (laughs) (laughs) Let me see. What can I do with AI? Cow Cow This was was mind-boggling. I was shocked. Well, I got to hear the rest of this now. Okay. Okay. So check this out. So cows get a virus called mastasis. If you're able to treat it early, you're able to save the cow and they're able to produce more milk and they're able to do what you have them there to do, right? And he started using this machine learning that he trained off some historical data that he had and then ultimately like was able to put sensors under the cow, see if they're having problems, basically if they got this virus or not, and then cure them very early on. And now he's like working with 90% of the... 
I was going to say he's probably producers. making a fortune, Oh, he's right? killing I mean, if you can find a niche like that, you're golden. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Well, we're coming to the end of the segment right now, and you're listening to Passage to Profit. Thank you very much, Mina, for talking to us about incubators and artificial intelligence. And we'll be right back after this message with Adam Tarinas, our executive spotlight. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearHeartLaw.com. At GearHeart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, Contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. We are going to start talking to Adam Tarinas, our executive spotlight now, but we just finished an incredible conversation with Mina Salib. If you missed it, the podcast comes out tomorrow. This guy's amazing and he knows stuff that's really the future. So tune into the podcast tomorrow if you missed it. But now on to Adam. He's got some fascinating things to say too. Welcome, Adam. Hi there. How you doing? Adam, you are a marketing guru. You've been marketing since probably the day you were born. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess there's some wisdom in there someplace, right? Because yeah. I, we start we start the marketing thing from a very early age. It's almost yeah. the, I, I the must, human condition. I must be getting old. People are calling me wise. <laughs> and you're a successful entrepreneur. You had a tech company and you, you had a successful exit. I did. Uh, congratulations yep. on you. that. And now you're off on your newest venture. So why don't yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, absolutely. So I am a veteran uh, marketing guy. So I started in marketing in the uh, late days of uh, late Mad Men days. But uh, the really exciting part of my uh, marketing career was being involved in digital right from the early days. So uh, I've been involved in digital marketing for about 15, 20 years now. You know, I, after my career in the advertising world, digital advertising world stopped, I'm, I then started up a healthcare startup, health technology startup. And it started actually as a an accidental business. Now, how does anybody actually <laughs> accidentally, accidentally start a business? I, I, I haven't heard this before. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you. So uh, a good friend and I, uh, who's a doctor, he's a sailing buddy. So everything that's good that's happened in my career is all down to sailing. But and rugby too. I mean, rug, if, rug, if, rug, if, if, if you want to make... If you want to make an impression on Adam, you talk about sailing and you talk about rugby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the two, two keys to my heart. So this sailing buddy and I were having uh, having breakfast and we were having a chat about health, what was going on in healthcare, and uh, we just kept talking and kept talking. And uh, we'd met for breakfast, and at about two o'clock in the afternoon, the people who ran the little diner said, "Could you please leave? You know, we need to." <laughs> We need to actually go home and you guys just won't <laughs> shut up. So uh, my friend and I thought, well, okay, we better start a business here. And so we, we started initially uh, helping hospitals uh, improve their communications because that's kind of my background. And, you know, it sort of it fit in with what he was doing as well. And after about six months, we thought, hmm, 
I wonder if there's an app for this. So we came up with this idea and we pitched it to one of the, the CEO of a hospital in uh, New Jersey. And he said, you know what? You build that thing, I'll buy it. And wow. so we did. We got some developers and about six months later, we came back and said, okay, we built it. And so uh, he very kindly sort of stuck to uh, stuck to his word. So he did buy it. He did. He All did. Right. Well, initially he did try it first. So he actually, we tried it out on about 30 doctors. And uh, after a month, we couldn't take it off them. They loved it. And uh, that's quite a difficult thing, actually. Uh, you know, I've been involved in technology in a lot of industries, but in medicine, doctors have had a lot of technology around down their throats they don't like very much. And so to actually have something that they like was quite a big thing. So one of the features of the product was that doctors could make referrals for other services within the hospital network. Exactly. And so that was better for the hospital overall, but this way they could could share the referrals. The doctors knew who they were going to as opposed to really just having a more of an informal system, right? I mean, that's how it had been done before the app. So it was all about improving communications and making the network stronger. So trying to create a network effect within a healthcare system. So, you know, we kind of figured that the one piece of technology that doctors, you know, doctors and nurses that is, as well always have on them is a mobile phone. And so, you know, we were solving a lot of problems by putting a, an application in their pocket. And initially the app was doing exactly what you said, but eventually what it did is became like a Swiss army knife, you know, in the sense that it, ha- it did a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, we got some good, good early traction. We got a bunch more customers. We raised a little bit of money. We raised some more money. We absorbed another company. And um, that company became a, called, a company called Unify Health. And uh, six months ago, we sold that company to a big Canadian technology firm. And, uh, you know, I've uh, I've moved on from there now, and I'm very happy that uh, we've we've left that company and the technology in some very good hands. So uh, I'm very happy with the way things worked out. So I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things we don't talk about on the show this much is the exit. And so you just went through an exit. Tell us what it was like. <laughs> He's laughing. You've only got a few. You've only got a few minutes so, here. So. Wait, is he laughing or crying? I, well, I'm laughing because you know, there's somebody said to me once. So you know, the most stressful things in your life are I, I can't remember all of them, but there were things like you know, getting divorced, moving, and uh, the death of a loved one. I don't think that I would put, you know, selling your business definitely up there as well. There's a lot of uncertainty. The process itself is kind of interesting, you know. So, you know, pitching the company and pitching what a great thing it is to strangers is always interesting. You know, trying to convince somebody that they really need it and then negotiating the deal is uh, is a is an interesting process to go through. We we had good advice, you know, we had a great investment bank helping us do it. Um, very good lawyers. We all decided, you know, it was time to time to move on and to go through this. But it, it took a long time. I mean, it took a nine month start to finish. It's not a, everybody says, oh, it's, it'll be really quick. It's like never quick. It takes for, it, however, however long you think it's going to take, it'll be twice as long as you think it is. So do they do their own valuation of your company, kind of like a real estate appraisal? They do, yeah. And so that probably takes a while. And then do people typically think their company's worth more than the valuation? Is that a sticky point? Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Valuing a company in the early stage, you know, so when we were raising our first money was, you know, that was kind of a put your finger in the air and sort of hope you can try to get away with it. 
But you know what? At the end of the day, at the, the early stages, your valuation is what investors prepared to pay for it because they're more than anything, they're kind of betting on the team and the market size. But when you get to the late stage, then there are, there's much more data to deal with. So actually, at the end of the day, we're dealing with a multiple of revenue. So our business was a SaaS business, so software as service. And so the price that a buyer was prepared to pay was what multiple, how many times revenue they were prepared to buy. And so that's kind of what we were negotiating over. And then the other factor is, you know, you get different types of offer. They're not, you know, we, we, we got multiple offers and every single one of them was different. So one was all cash, one was cash and stock, one was, you know, a mix of a whole bunch of different things. And so, you know, in the end, we went with the one that, you know, the board and the share that was best for the primary shareholders. Did you have anything in writing saying they can't just buy the company and kill it? Like they have to keep it going for a while? In a manner of speaking, in that there is a performance. So part of the way that we sold the company was that there was, you know, a large portion in cash and then there was an earn out. And so the earn out is based on the performance of the company once they own it. And so, you know, that we're both incentive for them to do that, you know, and so there was certain criteria for, for that. I can't really, obviously, I can't go into the details. And if I could, it'd be very boring anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not to me. But. <laughs> so let's turn our attention to marketing. And that is now yes, your new venture. Yes, You're starting yes, yeah. uh, yep. an agency. So yeah. uh, to all those entrepreneurs out there, what are the things that you would tell them about marketing or their business? Right, right, right. So just a little bit about why I'm, you know, having done a tech startup why am i going back into marketing and it says you know at the end of the day you know it's my passion it was my first professional love and i still love it and also i learned about many different things about marketing by having my own technology business so you know it kind of changed what i thought about marketing actually and so what so, kind of things did you so learn? there's some kind of four things that i think i would say to anybody you know starting a business particularly technology business that they need to do. First and foremost, put digital at the center of everything that you do. So if you've only got, you know, 50 bucks to spend on marketing, spend that with 50 bucks on building a website. Everything revolves around what you do in digital, online and in mobile, social media. And, you know, you then use the traditional media like TV and PR and things like that to drive everything to digital. I think to a lot of people, particularly people under the age of 30, it's like, well, what else would you do? Because that's all they've grown <laughs> up with. But, but on the other hand, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, for old, old geezers like me, it's like it's actually is, you know, it's changing the model because back in the old days, it used to be TV was everything. And uh, the more money you had, the more power you had. And uh, now that's changed. And it means that, you know, there are plenty of businesses that have started without spending a dime on on TV or traditional traditional marketing and done everything online. So that's number one, you know, digital at the center. The second thing is a notion called they ask you answer. So there's a, it's actually a, it's a book by a guy called Marcus Sheridan called They Ask You Answer. And the premise of that is that, you know what, whatever you're selling, people out there have got questions and they've got millions of questions. So it doesn't matter whether you're selling swimming pools or selling a you know, $100 million piece of software, people have got lots and lots of questions. And so, you know, as a marketer, your responsibility is to be the best at answering those questions and do it online. And the better you do at that, the more likely is people are going to find their way to your door. Because you know what? If you, whatever you're buying, 
you're going to start with a search engine and it's most likely going to be Google. The second one, the place you're going to go is going to be YouTube and then, you know, wherever else, what other favorite search engine you use. And so your job as a marketer is to make sure that you're answering those questions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like Amazon does a fantastic job of that with the way they present the products. Obviously, you know, the whole thing about reviews and technical specifications and how big is it and how much does it weigh and what colors. Absolutely. All of those things. It's the whole premise is built around answering the questions. Is this a good product? And is this going to fit my needs? And that's part of the reason that format, I think, has made them very successful. Yep. I think the third thing I'd say is don't think like a marketer, think like an entertainment company. And I don't mean, you know, become like, you know, Hollywood, but I mean, you know, you've got to be thinking that you need to be in the business of creating content. And that's hard. I mean, what you guys are doing here with Passage to Profit, I think is one of the best examples I've seen of doing it. Thank you. Yeah, no, I know. I mean it. I was, I was incredibly impressed that, you know, with, with what you're doing here. But, but I've seen, you know, in the industry, so for, for example, in health technology, which is, you know, it's kind of a boring industry, but um, there are a couple of companies, the one's called Health Catalyst and the other one's called Redox Engine. And what they've done is they've said, you know what, what our marketing mission is to be the authority in what we do. It's like, you know, if anybody's got a question or if anybody wants expertise in this, we want to be like top of their list. And they've done it all by creating lots and lots of content and video and podcasts and white papers and blogs and webinars and everything that, you know, every kind of digital format that you can think of. And they don't really use anything else. I mean, they don't do PR, they don't do TV, any of that sort of stuff. Both those companies have just taken off like wildfire in in an industry it's very hard to do. So that's, you know, those are my kind of three, three bits of advice, but it's essentially it's all about digital. And really what you're talking about is really making sure that the consumers are well-informed. Yep. They understand what they're buying, what they're getting into, and they're judging for themselves whether it's a good fit. As yeah, opposed exactly. to yeah. having somebody push something on them yeah. that may not be a good fit. Right? Exactly. Yeah. There's more than one way to communicate something. And I think that you have to communicate in an interesting and effective way. All of us have had the boring professor or boring teacher and you get somebody else who teaches the same subject and you're riveted. So how do you make your content riveting? You know, again, I think it's about answering the questions that they have. So start by figuring out, well, I'm going to give you a riveting answer if I'm answering your question because you're listening to what I'm saying. So first of all, just get write down the questions that your customers have. And the second thing is, is then then figure out how you're going to do it in an engaging way and engaging is one of those words where it kind of means different things to different people. So it might mean entertaining, you know. So there are plenty of videos out there that are really fun and sort of tell a story in a fun way. Another thing is just, you know, talking straight to camera and giving a really, really good answer. If you put yourself in the shoes of your audience, it's all about empathy, right? So if you understand who you're selling to and what's important to them and what are they like, and then talk to them on on their terms. Because the way that you might say, for example sell to a 30-year-old, you know, mother of three and get them engaged is going to be very different than you the way you're going to sell to the CIO of a bank. 
you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're talking to. Well, Adam, so fantastic to have you. Great advice great. and yeah. your great stories about the exit. We love that. And by the way, if you want to know more about what I'm doing, you can see it on my website, which is chirinas.com, which is T-U-R-I-N-A-S for sugar.com. You're listening to Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gerhardt on WOR 710. We'll be right back after this message. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley, the inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years, hundreds of products later, and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world, QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not? Make it you. If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Now it's time for the pitches. But before we start, as usual, some vital info. When you're listening to these two guys pitch their companies, think about which one you like best. Everybody gets one vote. You can go to the Gearhart Law website, find the Passage to Profit page, scroll down, find where you can vote. And vote for your favorite. <laughs> so that was very clear explanation. Thank you. That's Gerhard First show was Law. making faces at me. <laughs> you can't start your pitch early. <laughs> so that's Gerhard Law, G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W. Everyone gets one vote, and the voting is open for four and a half days until Friday morning at 10 a.m. And don't forget, too, to like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So you only get one vote. So get your friends to vote, and it's Passage to Profit. So think about walking down a long passage with a big pot of gold at the end. And may your passage be short and your profit be huge. Huge. So finally now, Kershaw, we're on to the pitches. Each contestant gets two minutes to pitch, followed by a discussion with Mina, Adam, and us. And the best overall vote getter gets a professionally produced video of their pitch, a $500 value. And it goes on our YouTube channel. So let's get started. Pitch one is a returning entrepreneur, Kershaw Anthony, who has been on the show before. Hey, man. Uh, we'll hear his progress since he was last on the show, and you have two minutes. Welcome, Kershaw. Hello. What's going on, everyone? Um, so thankful to be back here again. Uh, last time I was on the show, I was talking about my dance fitness leadership program that I've uh, developed for schools from uh, pre-K to 12th grade called Kaboom Kids. And what I've done is created a program to teach kids how to stay healthy and how to stay active mentally and physically just to be stronger individuals and to be more creative individuals as they grow up. Um, so we do a lot of public schools, private schools. We deal with a lot with kids with disabilities uh, and things of that nature. But we're just here to bring some great energy, some great positive energy to these young minds. And uh, that's how Kaboom Kids was created and has been going on for the past six plus years. From that adventure, we created a nonprofit organization in the past eight months called This Is My Swag Foundation. And through my 
process of being in schools, I realized there was a lot of schools out there that couldn't afford the programs that we were doing and that they needed more of the programs than the schools that were you know, able to get us in there. So I created the nonprofit to now raise money so we could now target schools that really need, that could benefit from not only the physical education, but from like the social-emotional learning, from the STEM programs, leadership programs, things of that sort that's going to really get these kids in the right state of mind to be successful you know, future entrepreneurs of this lifetime. So that's what I'm here to do is just pitch about this organization. We're looking for like-minded individuals who will love to donate to the program, to collaborate to the program. Our goal is really to raise $100,000 this year to really do a program in a school that costs us between fifteen dollars to $20,000, depending on how big the school is. Some school has 300 kids. Some schools have 1,200 kids. So that's the money that we're really trying to raise for this year so we really could target at least you know three or four schools within the Long Island community. That's great. Great, man. So how, how many schools are you in now? So right now we're over 145 schools New York-wide, and that's just public schools. So private schools with about 30 private schools. We're in a lot of libraries and with about six different special needs schools as well. Wow, you have a lot of energy, but you do all these programs yourself, or do you have other people helping? <laughs> um, um, yeah, as you get older, you think that's possible, but it's not. You know, And uh, to really grow your business successfully um, and to really reach to all the people out there, you really need more to really help you grow that business. Yeah, so if you can get corporations to support your nonprofit, what do they get in return besides having done something wonderful and giving kids a chance who could blossom out to be the next genius, right? Well, for them, it'll be coming onto a, an organization that's helping the community. So, I mean, we, we're talking with Nike. We see over 100,000 kids a year. So, you know, for us to be in the school and to not only show what we do, but, hey, we're sponsored by Nike or something of that sort, it actually gives them a nice marketing tool as well, you know, uh, for them to reach out to people that they don't usually reach out to. So for us, you know, we we are kids ourselves, so we have that communication that sometimes, I'm not saying, you know, my, Nike doesn't have that communication, but we're able to get to that source that maybe they're they're missing, you know. So, you know, things as big as Nike or as to a small uh, mom and pop store in the local community, for them to come and collaborate with us, support what we're doing, then we're able to help them as well create some type of communication and um, awareness to what they're doing in the community as well. What's an example of one of the services that you provide to a school? So Kaboom Kids is one of the services. So it's the dance fitness program where we teach kids a dance routine within a 45 minute to hour period. And we're able to be there for the full day or sometimes six months. And that's why what we're looking to raise kind of varies because to a school, the longer we're there, right, the longer you're with a customer, the more they're able to develop and grow with you and actually get to that goal. But along with the dance program, we do a lot of leadership programs. You know, like you guys talked about entrepreneur, like this is the time where, you know, you don't need the billion dollars. You don't need to be on TV to really make it in your business. There are nine-year-olds out there creating content and making money and making a, a stamp in this entrepreneur world. So, you know, leadership programs, guiding these kids that to follow their passion is one of the programs that we do as well. Um, we also do um, uh, social emotional learning. So these kids dealing with bullying, dealing with their emotions is where technology has kind of taken over that the communication process between kids are just are non-existent anymore. So now we need to bring that back. Schools are actually looking for programs to now deal with these kids to tell, hey, how do you 
you know, deal with your emotional setbacks? How do you deal with things that don't go right in your life anymore since there's no more of that communication, you know, that's going on there? Is this just a physical offering or is there a digital offering as well? I'm in the digital world. I mean, that's how we are marketing ourselves is more on the social media aspect of things. But I always wanted to create, and I think we did at one point, we wanted to create an app where after we're in the schools, these kids or these parents can now download an app to get more insight, to get more information, because we get a bunch of emails all the time. We get the kid that's been, um, you know, silent in school, never raises his hand, but through one 45-minute program, he's a new kid. So now the parents want more of it. How do I get more of my kid to be, you know, in tune with what you're doing? So we're... We're in that moment of doing that. We want to create the content. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. We do a lot of things on, uh, on Instagram where the kids, once we tag them in the school, they're able to see them themselves afterwards where we could create, you know, really cool content and things like that for them just to be more aware of what's going on. And again, that time spent is really critical. So I'd rather not 45 minutes. I'd rather a whole year with you because we will really develop this true entrepreneur, the true courageous, positive, like-minded individual. So Kershaw, this sounds fantastic. And Thank you would you. think that the benefits of exercise are obvious, but what kind of results are you getting with your program? I'm getting excellent results. The parents are emailing us after their kid comes home from school. Two years ago, we started with one school and within that one year, they saw the development of what their kids were more engaged in going to school. They were able to solve problems. They felt that, oh, we need Kaboom Kids in here. We need This Is My Swag in here more before test day. We need it during health week. We need it before the finals because it gets these kids to loosen up a little bit, feel good about themselves, and then be able to do better on their test. And from that going on, we were now able to do all of Patchogue Beckford District. You know, so the superintendent goes, this is awesome in this elementary school. I need you in the rest of them, all seven of them. So this is what's been going on with uh, school systems like that. It's really been growing, and uh, we really need to get the message out there because for those who have us in there, there is credible evidence of moving forward of kids really just getting the benefit from our programs. How big is the team? The team is growing. Right now we have about seven or eight instructors. Besides that, I have an entertainment company, so I deal with you know doing bar mitzvahs, suit 16s, and things like that. So I have that entertainment. <laughs> right, what do you right, do? Right. I mean, everybody gets out of the floor and they do push-ups right. or dance moves so, or what uh, is the what I, is the deal there well with the, i i'm the man that's running the show so if you book me and my entertainment team i'm there to make sure that whatever event you're having whether it's corporate wedding bar mitzvah it's the best thing that anybody's ever been to you know i'm trying to make that day the best day of your life and i'm the person to do it are all of your companies on one website your nonprofit and everything else or do you have various websites um we do have various websites but you could find everything on my personal website which is kershelanthony.com K-E-R-S-H-E-L, last name Anthony.com. And you can find everything that I'm involved in and that I'm doing. But the most thing I definitely want to push is this is my swag foundation. So we're on all social media platforms, YouTube. Just type in this is my swag.org is the website. That's where my heart is right now. And that's where we really need the most energy. So please, for those out there who's influenced by what I'm talking about, log on, collaborate with us, support, donate. 
Whatever you need, you know, we need you. This is my swag foundation. The way I'm saying it is the way you spell it. This <laughs> is my swag <laughs> foundation. All right, we got it. We got it. <laughs> Thanks All again. Right. No All problem. Right. Thank you so much, guys. You're it was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gerhardt. We'll be right back. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit GearHeartLaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. We are now on to our second pitch. Michael Rodov, you have two minutes, Mike. Go. Thanks, Elizabeth. My name is Mike Rodov. I'm the co-founder and CEO of AdNode. AdNode's mission is to create accountability in digital advertising. Think of us as bridging the world between artificial intelligence, which Minot focuses on, or uh, the madmen digital advertising world that Adam spoke about earlier. Uh, what we do is we help brands and digital advertising agencies ensure that their advertising is accounted for, that it's highly effective, and that every dollar that they spend is attributed to an ad that's successfully delivered. And by creating that underlying software and technology, we essentially allow them to have the confidence and assurance that what they're doing is actually working and driving results. If you look at the market today, about 55 cents of every dollar spent in digital advertising is lost to fraudulent advertising, wasteful ads, ads that are not actually viewed by a human for longer than, say, a second or what the marketer's standard might be. And even when it is, the paperwork and the analysis around working through what actually happened and how those dollars were spent um, really takes months, months to settle through. So, you know, the world's largest ad agency has two times as many employees as ExxonMobil, the world's largest oil company. We're comparing a digital company versus a company that literally moves oil. So it's an industry that's working off of technology that really probably some of it was built in the Mad Men days that we were <laughs> spoken about earlier. And we actually use a technology, you might have heard of it, called blockchain. And essentially what that does, it allows both sides, digital ad agencies and publishers, publishers are the companies that sell the ads and deliver them to users. We help both of them use the same set of data for their transactions to really allow everybody to be on the same page in terms of how digital advertising works. And this is uh, very personal for me because I actually used to run a publisher. I was the CEO of a company uh, for about five and a half years. I founded it and sold it at the end of 2017. It was kind of like pushing a boulder up a hill. We got to about $3 in revenue, um, nearly doubled revenue our last three years. Really proud of that. 
But at the same time, selling digital advertising is really hard, despite how great you might be at producing quality content. So, you know, what we found is if we can create software and tools and technology that allow the digital advertisers and the publishers to be on the same page, we can actually focus on making digital advertising more effective and ultimately create a better user experience as well. So great. That's like the holy grail, right, of, yeah. of marketing. Congratulations on that effort. So what are some of the techniques that you use to achieve these goals? One of the key techniques is automating the reconciliation process. Oh, wait, 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 wait. That sounds like it's very complicated. <laughs> is that like balancing a checkbook? Um, sort of. So I'll, I'll walk you through it in layman's terms. Um, if you're a company, you hire, typically hire an ad agency, you have somebody in-house who buys digital ads. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end of the campaign, they have data in three, four, five different locations. Um, one set of data might be the order form that they filled out. It's called an insertion order. Another set of data might be, hey, what happened with the ads? How many ads were delivered? Another set of data might be what percentage of the ads were viewed and so on and so forth. Uh, somehow this data ends up becoming available only really at the end of a, the campaign in a way where you can actually combine it. And then you probably spend a couple of days, you have a team of people spend a couple of days putting all that data together using, uh, if you've heard of pivot tables, it's just putting a lot of spreadsheets Sounds together. Sounds very complicated. Yeah, it's like when you do your taxes, um, <laughs> think of that process five right. times over every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, <laughs> now, uh, yeah. so then on the other side, you have the publishers. And the weird thing about this is the publishers also have five different places where you have uh, basically download spreadsheets um, from at the end of the campaign. Guess what? After they go through this process of essentially doing their taxes too, their numbers don't match up what the other guys have. Um, so it's called digital advertising. What that means is three months after you run the digital ads, people are on the phone and sending emails and so forth, arguing over what actually happened. <laughs> so technique number one is create uh, reconciliation. And what that essentially means is we allow the ad agency or the marketer and the publisher to agree upfront on which set of data they're going to use to measure whether the campaign's successful and what the rules are for how you're gonna count against that data for which ads should and shouldn't be paid for. Um, we ingest that data during the campaign and then the technique is we verify that the data is what the data is and share it with both sides so everybody's relying on the same set of data along the way. Uh, mathematically, nobody can change the data along the way and everybody knows during the entire process what's performing, what's not, which opens up a whole avenue of optimization, improving efficiency, and so that's uh, one really interesting technique. A lot of the problem is a lot of there's a lot of like fake profiles online. There's a lot of like bots to just click on certain things to actually inflate numbers, and I, I find that to be like the underlying issue, which a lot of people are putting a lot of money towards marketing spends that they're actually, the impressions that they're quote unquote supposed to see are not actually being seen, right? Um, or the clicks that they're supposed to be getting are actually, they're fake, right? They're not, they're not actually real clicks. So does your solution actually tackle that issue? So what we do is we actually integrate with ad measurement companies, um, some really big ones that help solve that issue of measuring specifically whether or not ads are real, are, are viewed by real people. And there are a lot of ways to measure something called invalid traffic and inefficient traffic. And essentially one of the challenges in this space is there isn't a good way to actually keep the records of what's going on. So here, what we allow the companies to do is to be able to preserve the records and have um, essentially manage the data in such a way 
that you're kind of held accountable. Once the data is there, you can't change it. Right now, somebody could, you know, say they have twice as many users in their site in their PowerPoint presentation, you have no way of knowing whether that's true or not. Whereas here, they can just prove it by pointing to it because it's proven on the blockchain. I see. Some of the companies we're really excited about working with is one company's called The Gate Worldwide. They're a mid-sized ad agency. This particular agency has about 200 people globally, and they're part of a larger group. And they're kicking butt. They're really strong domain experts. They're excellent. You know, this is a firm that's really investing and moving forward in terms of figuring out how to use software like AdNode to be able to ensure that every dollar they spend is attributed and they have a record for it. So at the end of the day, if you're a brand thinking about, should I adopt this sort of technology? The question is, if you want to have certainty that your dollars aren't being wasted, uh, you should probably think about using a company like AdNode for this. So how do the search companies feel about this? Are they generally behind this kind of effort or is it in their interest just for ads to keep running regardless? Yeah, I, I think they have different interests. Clearly, some of those firms have done interesting work in the general blockchain sector. Um, Facebook has been you know, exploring it, as we all have heard in the news. Um, I, I think Google has been as well. The thing is that when you are a large entity like that, you really control a lot of data. You control how people access the data, and there's no really good way to audit it. I think accountability is something that uh, might take some of those walled gardens longer to adopt, but the reality is if it's actually been hurting the long tail publishers a lot more. So actually two-thirds of the eyeballs are on sites other than Google, Facebook, Alibaba, etc., but two-thirds of the dollars are going to Google, Facebook, Alibaba, and so right. forth. And so where are the eyeballs? <laughs> yeah. I want to ask our marketing director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, when you're looking at video game uh, articles, uh, financial sites, uh, yeah, they're kind of on these big websites. Ariana, the Yahoo.coms of the world. Um, there are a lot of niche sites, right? Like I ran a financial site that reached you know three million monthly users, and we had like in-depth researchers. Uh, it was really interesting content. So the question is, how do you support? that that sort of unique content and you know when everybody has their own set of numbers and nobody really trusts it's really hard to do that and the default is you go to one or two three big places to buy ads now when you can create a premium marketplace where all the ads you buy are the highest quality ads those companies have because they know if they put out too many bad ads there they're going to be caught right. doing it um, all of a sudden it creates a really new avenue for brands and agencies to explore Mike, I know you're not in the business of selling digital advertising, but based on your experience, what could you tell our entrepreneur listener group about buying digital advertising? What advice would you give to them? Buying digital advertising can be extremely difficult, and I think there's often an urge to buy the lowest priced ads on the space. Uh, probably heard a bit of open programmatic where you spend a couple of dollars, you get a ton of advertising, and it just, you get a large volume for a relatively low amount of money. Uh, my strong suggestion is don't do that. Don't just throw dollars at something just because it's the lowest price thing. Um, I think it's really important to understand what your target market is, as uh, we heard hinted earlier, and really try to figure out where those people are. Try to reach out to the sites. Like if you have a $20,000 budget, think of, you know, what are the three, four places where there are a lot of people reach out to those sites, try to negotiate a deal or maybe buy ads directly targeting those sites, targeting specific types of users on their sites, really relevant to your product, ideally in places where folks you're targeting would find themselves. And sometimes an agency can help you with that, right? But sometimes it's better just to go um, on your own. Well, no, you can absolutely use an ad agency to help you reach out to publishers. And it's not necessarily just going direct. You can also buy 
those sites through programmatic channels and just targeting them. And of course, using tools like AdNode, you can do that in a way where you know every dollar you spent makes sense. This has just been fascinating. Thank you very much, Mike. You are listening to WOR 710 with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart, our special guest, Mina Salib, and our executive spotlight, Adam Tarinas. And we will be right back. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearhart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearhartLaw.com. At Gearhart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearhart Law, www.gearhartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearhart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. Together, we can change the world. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. Tonight's show is kind of about marketing, right? We had all sorts of different marketing, and we had the intense marketing of Kershaw Anthony, and we had the <laughs> digital marketing <laughs> of Mike. So there's all types of marketing, right? Yeah. So remember, everyone, to go to the Passage to Profit page at GearhartLaw.com, G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W, and vote for your favorite project. So to summarize, we had... Kershaw Anthony, K-E-R-S-H-E-L, Anthony. And he was pitching a number of different things, but his favorite one right now is thisismyswag.org, his new nonprofit. And you can find him at kershawanthony.com or thisismyswag.org. And our second pitch was Michael Rodov, adno.io, A-D-N-O-D-E dot I-O. Just kind of an amazing blockchain use, like somebody who's actually really using blockchain in a way it was intended. Don't forget to check out our guest, Mina Salib. That's M-I-N-A-S-A-L-I-B. He's on LinkedIn. And our executive spotlight, Adam Tarinas at T-U-R-I-N-A-S dot com. Now Google Passage to Profit and make your choice. Remember, you can only vote once and you have until next Friday at 10 a.m. to vote. The best overall vote getter for the show will receive a professionally produced video of their pitch at $500 value. So before we sign off, thanks all you guys for coming to the studio today. It was great having you here. Wonderful show. Absolutely. And I want to say thanks again to our guest, Mina Salib. Do you have any words of wisdom for our audience? I would say just get involved. Wherever your dream is, whatever you want to build, whatever you want to learn, the only action is action, right? Like you have to go out and do it. That's great. And Adam, Tarinas, do you have any final words for us? You know, take that first step. I mean, that's that, that is the key thing. I think Mina said it better than I can. It, just jump in, do it. That sounds great. Oh, we also have a few people to thank here at iHeart. Our media maven, Kenya Gibson. Our producer, Noah Fleischman, who is amazing. Rob Barrett, our incredible engineer, and the whole iHeart team. And listeners, don't forget to join us next week for another excellent speaker and another round of pitches. And you can start thinking about what your pitch will be. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This is Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart from Gearhart Law on iHeartRadio with Passage to Profit, WOR 710, the voice of New York. 